This is Monday Morning QB, October 26, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, voters respond to voter suppression tactics, radical extremists on the ballot, the latest human rights struggle in Nigeria, and we look back on the role of women in the historic Million Man March. All that, and we're asking for your financial support for WPFW. Our goal is $500 for this hour, and we've received a challenge from listener Chip Jones, who will match every dollar you donate up to $250. Your gift will be doubled, so please contribute now. Call toll-free 1-800-222-9739, go online at WPFWFM.org, or cash app us at Dollar sign WPFW. The public response to reports of voter suppression has been overwhelming. More than 55 million people have already voted, and some states are just beginning early voting today. In Florida, more people have already turned out for early voting then voted for President Trump in that state in 2016. This year, in the guise of COVID-19 protection, voter suppression has also increased. We asked Nicole Austin Hillary, Executive Director of the U.S. Program of Human Rights Watch, what's worse this year than the purging of voters from the rolls as happened in Florida and Georgia in the 2018 election cycle? There is something worse than that. And that's because purges are just one type of voter suppression. And we really have to go back to prior to 2018 if we want to take a full look at this issue as it's manifested itself in 2020. And we have to go back to 2013 when the Supreme Court struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. When they struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that meant that states and jurisdictions that had a history of voter discrimination no longer had checks and balances in place. Once those checks and balances were taken away, then states actually went buck wild, if you will, just to put it bluntly. States that wanted to make it harder for certain groups, and and I'm going to be very direct, but who wanted to make it harder for black, brown, and poor communities to vote had the opportunity to do so. It, it, it was wide, the field was wide open. And that's when we saw the manifestation of voter ID laws. We saw cutbacks to same day registration and early voting and Sunday voting. And all of these changes together, collectively, uh, are the reason why we have the level of voter suppression that we are dealing with as we approach the 2020 presidential election. Well, we could see in Florida and in Georgia, the effect was the defeat of two popular and possibly victorious black candidates in gubernatorial elections in those states. Has there been any other effects of this massive voter suppression? Certainly. Um, you know, and, and let's, let's look at some recent examples. There were election officials around the country that 
as recently as the, the winter and spring, when the primary presidential primary season kicked off, made changes to their to their rules and regulations governing voting. Now, many of them said, we're making these changes as a result of COVID. We need to respond to the fact that we've got to keep people safe and healthy while still ensuring that they can engage in our electoral process. But what we suspected in Human Rights Watch and what we documented in a report that we released in September is that many of those jurisdictions simply use COVID as a pretext for making changes that amounted to voter suppression, that amounted to changes that created long lines, that amounted to changes that limited the number of polling places that were available to uh, to voters. Um, all of those things are a result of these changes. You mentioned long lines. Now, as we watch yes. record numbers of people turning out for early voting, we see long lines anyway. Uh, what does that yeah. say about the determination of voters to not be suppressed? You know, I I'm emboldened when I see that because that says to me that voters recognize the power of the vote. You know, I tell people all, all the time, I don't care what your lot in life is. I don't care what your position is. There is nothing more powerful that you have at your disposal to engage in our democracy than voting. Um, former late great Congressman John Lewis said it best. He said voting was the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in our arsenal and at our disposal. And that is indicative when you see the numbers of people that have come out to engage in early voting. So that's, that's, the, first, that's the first reaction I have to those long lines. The second reaction I have is this, that we need to create more opportunities for voters to engage in our electoral process. We already know, again, from the research that we did at Human Rights Watch, where we looked at four jurisdictions, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Arizona, that several of those jurisdictions simply don't have the number of polling stations that they need in order to meet the demand. So we really need jurisdictions across the country to heed the demand of the voters and provide them even more polling places such that these long lines will be limited uh, and in many instances could possibly be eliminated. Um, but again, it's up to elections officials to make those changes. Um, but that's what those long lines are telling me, that people recognize the power of the vote, that they want to get engaged. Uh, and it's also a sign that elections officials need to do more to meet those demands and those needs. And finally, it shows that people recognize in this country the seriousness and the critical moment that we're in leading up to November uh, 3rd, 2020. I have to tell you, I would be surprised if after November 3rd, we weren't seeing statistical data come out that shows that this would will be the highest level of voter participation this country has seen in decades. Why don't people want everybody to vote so that this country can boast that this is a full participation? You know, that comes down to certain politicians wanting to use voting, which is the right of every person in this country. It comes down to 
certain political operatives wanting to use voting for their own purposes and not really respecting it as the democratic tool that it is. The democratic tool that it is is such that it is supposed to provide an opportunity for every person to have a voice in how this country is governed. That's it, pure and simple. What we're seeing is that these individuals are more focused on winning elections and having their party maintain control and power than they are in ensuring that all people in this country who are eligible to vote are able to exercise that right. And that's what's guaranteed under international human rights law. International human rights law guarantees that every eligible voter should have access to free, fair, and equitable elections, pure and simple. But unfortunately, we have politicians in this country who don't adhere to that but and who instead focus on political goals rather than the goal of ensuring democracy for every person. When you mention international human rights law, I've been an election observer in African countries. I wonder, is it time for there to be international election observers to observe the election in this country to make certain that it's free and fair? Uh, That's a great question, and and absolutely. And we have had a history of that in this country. In fact, the United States has a history of inviting international observers to come to the United States to observe our elections and our processes. In fact, I've been a part of, of discussions in the past in my work working on voting rights over the past 12 years um, in which I've sat down with some of those observers. But something interesting has happened this year. Those observers can only come into the country if they are invited by the government, the hosting government. We have, for the first time in many years as a nation, failed to extend those invitations. And it requires a great deal of work and effort and preparation for those observers to come to the United States and to have everything in place that they need to have in place in order to serve in that role. And literally, in talking with some of them over the past few weeks, our organization has has learned, look, you know what, even if we got an invitation tomorrow, we couldn't make it happen because they weren't extended in time. And this is really unprecedented. Nicole Austin Hillary executive director of the U.S. Program for Human Rights Watch. Thanks for sharing with us. You're quite welcome. Thank you so much for reaching out to me into Human Rights Watch, uh, and I wish everyone well as they engage in our upcoming election. Minority rule threatens the United States. Voter suppression, racial and partisan gerrymanders, and stacking of the federal judiciary all ensure the success of Republican policy at a time when the party consistently fails to win the support of a majority of voters. Is there a way out of this mess? Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has an answer. There was a time when members of both major political parties were committed, at least publicly, to protecting the vote and regularly reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. Those days are long gone. 
David Daly is a senior fellow at FairVote and author, most recently, of Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. He also wrote the latest cover story for The New Republic, titled Inside the Republican Plot for Permanent Minority Rule. Daly says that while Republican opposition to the Voting Rights Act and to expansion of the franchise generally has bubbled underneath the surface for decades, it wasn't until the 2008 election of Barack Obama that the GOP's reverence for voting norms was truly shattered. Party operatives read the demographic tea leaves and turned their backs on democracy. Republicans after the 2008 election are in a state of panic. They have lost two successive wave elections. They are seeing the Southern strategy melt under the changing demographics of a new American nation that elects Barack Obama president in 2008, but that also hands Democrats a supermajority in the U.S. Senate. And if you look back to that night, there were a lot of the smartest strategists in the country who believed that the Republicans were about to become a minority party in this country for a generation. And of course, it didn't work out that way. Republicans try to hit on a path back to power. And what they realize is that the 2010 election is coming and that that could be more consequential than 2008 because it's a redistricting year. And Republicans recognize that if they could win 107 state legislative seats across 16 states, they would have the ability to control redistricting and and draw themselves advantageous state legislative and congressional maps for the next decade. And that this represented an opportunity. They didn't have to win a national election to cement themselves back into power. They could simply win a handful of state and local elections, flip control of these legislatures, and, and lock themselves into power. And That's exactly what they did. They uh, run a a strategy called Red Map in 2010. It's short for the Redistricting Majority Project. And they win all of these swing state legislatures. The maps they draw, thanks to the technology and the big data that, that comes online in 2011, it allows them to do gerrymanders that are more precise and exacting than ever before. And indeed, they have not lost a chamber in any of these states since then. So the maps that Republicans drew in 2011 have lasted this entire decade. Uh, I don't think you can really understand American politics without understanding what Red Map did to not only remake maps, but to change the kind of Republicans that get elected from these districts. And that's what I think many of these establishment Republicans didn't realize. They thought that they had hit on a strategy that would keep them in power short term, perhaps while they developed new messages around immigration and, you know, found ways to reach out to younger voters, all of the things that they talk about in the 2012 autopsy that the party conducts. The trouble is by relying on redistricting as a strategy, they set themselves up for all of these uncompetitive districts in which the only action is in the Republican primary, which then means that the winner is the craziest, most extreme person off to the right. And they elect people like Mark Meadows. And these districts became a Frankenstein's monster that pushed the caucus so far to the right that the Republicans were not able to push through things like immigration uh, because the new districts that they designed were producing people who were so hardline that they would not compromise on any of these issues. You mentioned Red Map and the Karl Rove's redistricting project. 
And it seems from your writing that Obama and folks in his administration were taken by surprise by REDMAP. They didn't recognize, they knew about it, but they didn't recognize the depth of its importance. Since then, has the inability for Democrats to regain control of some of those state legislatures again a matter of lack of focus or is it a matter of these state legislatures are too entrenched for the GOP for Democrats to break through? I think all of that is right. You start with Obama being taken by surprise. I think a lot of Democrats were taken by surprise in 2010 and in 2012. I mean, Eric Holder tells me a story about how right after the 2012 elections, he and Obama are having a meeting outside the Oval Office and they're looking at the numbers and they're like, we thought we got a pretty good night. So, you know, what happened to us in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Ohio? Why didn't we do better in state legislatures and in Congress? And the answer was a red map and gerrymandering. They had good nights in all of those states, but uh, it didn't translate into seats. And indeed, Republicans hold on to the House in 2012, even though they win 1.4 million fewer votes. And Obama's second term agenda is effectively dead the night that he's reelected. And gerrymandering is a huge reason why. But since then, I think Democrats have been very aware and have been actively trying to you know, fight back and to fight for fair maps. The trouble is these maps have been so strong that it doesn't matter even when Democrats win more votes. Uh, they're not able to create any change there. And I think the best example is Wisconsin. In 2018, the last election in Wisconsin, the voters there re-elect a Democratic U.S. Senator in Tammy Baldwin. They knock out uh, an incumbent Republican governor in Scott Walker. Uh, they elect Democrats to every single statewide office, uh, treasurer, attorney general, secretary of state. And they give Democratic candidates 200,000 more votes for the state assembly. And Democrats are only able to flip one seat as a result, and they cut the Republican margin to 63-36. So 54% of the votes in Wisconsin adds up to about 36.5% of the seats. And that's, again, the power of gerrymandering. You quote a lot of retired GOP lawmakers as criticizing the naked power grab their party has engaged in. You write about the post-2012 election autopsy done by the GOP to figure out why they lost the presidential election, the results of which urging support for comprehensive immigration reform were ignored by the party. You also mention how the creation of uncompetitive districts has incentivized far-right or alt-right candidates to maximize influence and sometimes win office. Is there any hope for the GOP to reconfigure itself in the short term back to a party that actually appreciates, at least publicly, the expansion of the franchise? Or is the party entirely lost to this far-right, anti-voting, red map coalition? I think Republicans are going to have to take a pretty good look in the mirror after this 2020 election. And we will see what forces come together, right? And I know that there's a lot of Democrats who are still skeptical and suspicious of the Lincoln Project folks because of their involvement in Republican politics in the Iraq war over the years. But one place where I think that they have been really aware and apologetic and attempting to make change is when they talk about voting rights um, and when they talk about what the party has done on race. I mean, Jeff Weaver and Crystal and, and those folks are pretty clear that they recognize what was done, they recognize it was wrong, and that they won't do it again, and that they will work to change it. And we'll see, right? We will also see what kind of a role those players have 
in a post-Trump Republican Party, if there is to be a post-Trump Republican Party. I mean, there will still be at least a third to 35 percent of of that base that um, probably stays with the president. And it's hard to imagine him leaving the scene, even if he loses. Um, He'll be around in some way. His family will be around in some way. How other Republicans lean into this will be an interesting question. I don't think what we are seeing from the kind of litigation and from the kind of action Republicans are taking around the country, that there's a lot of reason for hope. You've got Greg Abbott in Texas, who is reducing the number of drop boxes to uh, one per county. You have Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is making it much more difficult for the uh, 1.4 million people who had a felony conviction in their past to uh, vote even after a statewide constitutional amendment. You have Republican state legislatures around the country who are, you know, making it more difficult to vote absentee or what the Wisconsin state legislature did in, uh, you know, essentially forcing voters to the polls in the middle of a pandemic. You see the 12-hour lines in Georgia. We will see if they are willing to have a change on the issue of voting rights. But what we are seeing in the 2020 election, I think, is a strategy of suppression that runs deep and has become almost entwined with how Republicans win elections. David Daly is a senior fellow at FairVote and author of the latest cover story for The New Republic, titled Inside the Republican Plot for Permanent Minority Rule. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. On Friday, the Daily Beast reported that the National Republican Congressional Committee donated $5,000 to Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican nominee for Georgia's 14th Congressional District. That might fly under the radar, given that that's what committees like that do, but its aim is to build a Republican majority in the House of Representatives through contributions to Republican candidates. But this contribution deserves our attention. Candidate Green is an open supporter of the QAnon conspiracy theory, and she is hardly the only one. Candidates connected to extremist ideologies are running for office across the country. Sue Goodwin reports. Amidst everything that is unprecedented about this election, there is a trend that is getting less attention than others, and there's good reason to argue it deserves more. That trend is the increasing number of candidates running for office with some kind of ties to extremist ideologies. Honestly, if this was 10 or 15 people, it might just be an anomaly footnote in an article, but 162 people, that's a lot. And it's part of a growing movement of more and more people who believe in some kind of anti-government um, ideology or conspiracy theory, they're not just running for office, they're getting close to winning or are winning. And that is a very alarming trend. That's Seth Levy. He's the Chief Program Strategy Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
just last week working with the SPLC Action Fund, he was part of a team that launched the Exposing Extremism in Elections Project. It's a guide to candidates who are running or ran for public office in 2020 and who sympathize or have ties to extremist groups or ideologies. And so what we did was take a look at candidates running for office at all levels across the country, looking to see who was a leader, member, or former member of an extremist group or a hate group or people who had some kind of ideological belief that aligned with one of these groups, or finally somebody who had some kind of transactional interaction with these groups. And that might be, you know, maybe they don't necessarily believe in the ideology of the group or they weren't a member, but they still may have appeared at an event or on a radio program of one of these groups to help promote their candidacy. It's a remarkably data-rich document. For each of the 162 names currently on the list, data includes, but is not limited to, party affiliation, the office they seek or sought, status of their campaign, and links to campaign websites. It also includes a summary of all of the candidates' ties to extremist groups or ideologies and the exact nature of that relationship. There's also a guide to the organizations and ideological movements that turn up in the data set. As the website explains, extremists in the U.S. come in many different forms. Some are more well-known than others, such as QAnon, the Proud Boys, and the Boogaloo movement. Others are less well-known, such as the Constitutional Sheriffs, a movement rooted in the far-right Posse Comitatus movement of the 1970s. Yes, in our database, we track a number of people who are constitutional sheriffs. Just some of the prominent beliefs of these folks to highlight that sheriffs are the highest elected authority in the United States, and they have the power to ignore uh, federal laws, that they, in fact, have an obligation to nullify federal laws that they believe are unconstitutional. And sheriffs can impede force out or even arrest federal agents who they believe are enforcing unconstitutional laws in their county jurisdiction. So who are some of the people on this list of extremist candidates? Some have been getting national attention, such as Marjorie Green, who is running in Georgia's 14th Congressional District. Green has been openly supportive of QAnon, and she said the election of the first two Muslim women to Congress in 2018 was evidence of, quote, an Islamic invasion of our government, unquote. She's been widely reported in the news, but I would still highlight her now because a couple of years ago, if we were having this conversation, it would have been about people that probably had no shot of being elected. And her candidacy shows that now there are people who believe in these anti-government conspiracy theories, that it is no longer far-fetched that they could be elected. And that really was one of our motivations for doing this project. Green is expected to win, and Trump recently tweeted out that she is a future Republican star. Also on the list is Laura Loomer. She's a self-described proud Islamophobe, running for Congress in Florida's 21st Congressional District, and has funneled donations through the anti-Muslim group, the United West. Trump praised her on her primary win. 
Another name is Angela Stanton King, who is running for the late John Lewis's seat in Georgia. She is somebody who has definitely taken positions in support of the QAnon conspiracy theory. We also have a pretty vile tweet that she put out on um, LGBTQ people. All this and much more you can learn by accessing the SPLC Action Fund's data set at exposingextremisminelections.org. And one thing you will notice that even though a wide variety of organizations and ideologies show up, from conspiracy movements to militias, from white nationalists to anti-LBGTQ zealots to Islamophobes, there's still a prevalent theme, and that is anti-government. Seth Levy has some ideas on why that is. While there are different movements and organizations that are on the list, that I think, again, the fact that so many of them are, broadly speaking, under this anti-government umbrella really does speak to this moment in time where there are people that are increasingly very distrustful of the federal government, believe that it is not only like not a force for good, but just something that can't be trusted that isn't going to actually harm them. And we just see people latching on to just different ideologies, different organizations, different movements, which at their core are all pushing the sort of same idea that the federal government is dangerous. To be clear, the SPLC Action Fund did not create the data set to tell people who to vote for or not to vote for. Our main goal is to provide this information. The people we elect, uh, no matter what level of government, have just incredible power and influence over our life. I think one thing that's in particular important about this data set that we're highlighting candidates at the local level and the state level. I think it's pretty obvious what we know what federal lawmakers can do, but local lawmakers, people who are the sheriff, for example, do have a tremendous amount of influence um, in our day-to-day lives. So how does Seth Levy hope people will use this database? I hope people use it to be informed, to really understand who they're voting for, what, again, people believe, and how that might influence what's going to look like when they're a lawmaker. What a candidate says and does, does often have implications for how somebody governs. And, you know, I think this applies to everyone you're going to vote for, whether or not the person is on our list. I mean, as an advocacy organization, our goal is to always just arm people with knowledge so that they can uh, make the best possible choices. Seth Levy, Chief Program Strategy Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And again, that website is exposingextremisminelections.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Protests have flooded the streets of Lagos, Nigeria for weeks now. And messages of solidarity from across the planet sometimes dominated social media. The demonstrators are singing a familiar refrain. They demand an end to police brutality and accountability for past wrongdoing by security forces. 
But even more than the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, the movement in Nigeria has faced violent repression that last week culminated in the killing of 12 peaceful protesters by police. Chris Banker Drowns has more. Nigeria is no stranger to police brutality or to movements calling for police accountability. The current protest wave traces to 2017, launched in opposition to long-standing mistreatment of the Nigerian people by its security forces. Demonstrations this year initially focused on atrocities committed by the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, but have since broadly condemned policing and politics in the country. Adote Akwe is Deputy Director for Advocacy and Government Relations at Amnesty International USA. He describes the history of the anti-SARS movement and the state of affairs in recent weeks. The events of the last couple of weeks in Nigeria have been marked by protests by the general public in response to police brutality, decades of police brutality. And they focused on a particular police unit called the SARS, Special Anti-Robbery Unit, which was notorious and infamous nationwide for basically being above the law. SARS was associated with extrajudicial executions, with extortion, with assault, arbitrary detention, very, very much the worst manifestation of a much larger issue of uh, poor policing in Nigeria. And about two weeks ago, the administration of President Muhammadu Buhari announced that it was disbanding the SARS unit. And this caught everybody by surprise because efforts to secure police reform and to shut down SARS had basically met with, uh, you know, brick wall. And there had been no indication or communications from the Buhari administration that this was being contemplated, let alone that they were moving ahead and doing it. What really turned things on was that the administration decided to just disband it and then reassign the members of the unit to other parts of the country. There was no indication of wrongdoing, no willingness to investigate or to hold anybody accountable. And more importantly, there didn't seem to be any acknowledgement of the dozens, possibly hundreds of cases of grievances and lawsuits against this particular unit. And that triggered the protests. The protests were nonviolent. They happened in Lagos. They happened in other cities of the country and were immediately met with brutality in terms of the response, which resulted in these deaths. And that only angered and inflamed things so that is where things are at and, and what's behind this. It's basically a culmination of decades of impunity, an administration that is dumb or unwilling to consider that there may be a problem with policing. And I guess a level of we've had enough from the general public that police need to start respecting human rights and we want, we want to start with the SARS unit. I think a lot of people remember the violent repression during the Arab Spring in northern Africa over a decade ago. And then just this week, there was an instance of police brutality captured on video in Zambia, retweeted by Amnesty Southern Africa. Is the brutality of SARS and the violent repression of demonstrations in Nigeria somehow representative of policing and security forces across the continent? Or is, is the approach to policing too diverse to say? Yeah, I, th I think it's actually more indicative of a closing civic space. And that civic space crackdown includes different levels of police activity, but it also includes the use of legislation to restrict people's ability to share information 
or to investigate. Um, it includes the arrest and detention of journalists. Um, it includes even legislation to, quote unquote, allow government oversight of the operations of civil society groups, basically to ensure that they're in compliance with the law and they're not agents of foreign powers. So the African governments are not limited to using the police in terms of cracking down on civic space. But of course, it's a consistent element across all of them. You mentioned Zambia. Um, one could also talk about what's going on in Tanzania. One could also talk about the very alarming situation in Ethiopia, where the Nobel Prize winning prime minister has not only arrested leading members of civil society, but has also detained thousands of Oromo and Amhara uh, students and activists. And this is all while trying to hold on to power until he has elections that are already months overdue. The other very alarming case would be in Cameroon, where you have the military and gendarmes really engaged in a brutal crackdown of nonviolent protests calling for more autonomy from the Anglophone regions, but also, of course, in response to the activities of armed separatists. So unfortunately, the larger issue here is not just policing, it's civic space and unfortunately even the concepts of rights. And I think that if we don't have that comprehensive approach and response, even as we respond to specific challenges, for example, policing in Nigeria, um, then we run into the danger that we may w win the skirmish here or the battle there, but we'll lose the war. The anti-SARS movement is really beginning to attract a lot of attention in the United States. And police brutality in the U.S. is inexorably related to this country's history of class division, racism, and anti-Blackness in particular. Are there racial, ethnic, or class distinctions in play when it comes to the brutality of SARS or the repression of the movement in Nigeria? I'm glad that you um, included um, the, the, the issue of class because I, I think, I, I, first of all, you're absolutely right that when the George Floyd movements were sort of spreading around, they were very much front and center in Africa in different parts of the continent not only because there was a real affiliation with the victims of police brutality in the United States from Africa, but I think also because there were similar struggles going on in, all of, in many of those countries. The, I think similarities are very, very apparent in, in the sense that they're linked to power structures and that they target the quote-unquote bottom of the pyramid, the social pyramid. And, and here in the United States, there's an overlap obviously with race, and how that pyramid is shaped. But in, in Nigeria, the structure is linked to class and to power. Uh, again, my, my personal opinion is that that's probably the most useful lens to look at what's going on in Nigeria and basically see the similarities between what's going on there and what's going on in the US. You have the power elites in Nigeria, either civilian or military, making use of the armed forces and armed forces being the enforcers of the structure and thereby using whatever means they are allowed to, and in Nigeria's case, it's quite a big allowance, to basically suppress and hold people in their place, so to speak. Where do you see this headed? What is the end game here? Are we going to see increased repression, or are we going to see the government finally respond to the movement's demands and actually seek some accountability for police misconduct? The default is increased repression and more of a crackdown. 
I say that with great regret because I think that's going to be very costly and it's going to be a real loss for Nigeria. I think that if we have effective interventions by the African Union, which has issued a statement condemning the violence, but not you know, acknowledging any of the demands from the protest movement, or if we don't see other interlocutors, for example, friends of Nigeria, some of Nigeria's donors, take a unified stance and say, this is not the thing to do and there will be consequences. Short of that kind of pressure, I don't think we're going to see a change in the Buhari administration's response. And so the risks are just going to keep on growing. And, um, you know, that I think is the default. I, I do think, however, that, you know, we've been, I, I, I w- would be the first one to say that in, at the beginning of 2019, when protests were happening in Sudan, demanding not only the ouster of Omar Bashir, but also an end to military rule, all of us were saying this is the bravest and probably the most futile thing that we've seen on the continent because the Bashir administration was notorious and also had been in power for over 25 years. And yet change happened. There was something that those protesters held on to. And I think while their journey is not done yet, it is a hopeful journey, a hopeful example that you never know. Nigeria could also, something could happen and there could be a break in the perception of these protests are, are illegitimate and, and should be crushed as opposed to actually these are legitimate Nigerians and Nigerians, all their lives all matter um, and we can't do the business as usual crackdown. So on the one hand, I'm very pessimistic. On the other, I think if they can stay strong and if there is increasing pressure, then we might be able to sort of get a change in their approach and trigger some kind of dialogue around what is necessary reform. Adote Akwe is Deputy Director for Advocacy and Government Relations at Amnesty International USA. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Twenty-five years ago, on October 16, 1995, well over one million mostly black men assembled on the National Mall. From the steps of the Capitol to the Washington Monument, where they peacefully lit the fuse of the Third American Reconstruction. The Million Man March took place on the 136th anniversary of the day in 1859, when John Brown and 22 others, only five black men that day, attacked the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry. There, they lit the fuse of what was to become the Civil War, the revolution which would end chattel slavery in this country and usher in the first Reconstruction. One of the untold stories of the Million Man March is about the role women played in shaping the decisions of Minister Louis Farrakhan, which led to a massive voter registration of more than a million men that day. Dr. Natalie Hopkinson is a Howard University communications professor. She has compiled oral histories about the work of women, like Cora Masters Barry and Maya Angelou, in the march. 
Hopkinson wrote an op-ed which appeared recently in the New York Times. A lot of the criticisms that there have been around the march is that, oh, it was just a feel-good day. You know, you really, what did it really change? Um, but the fact that all these men were politically engaged and uh, there were some estimates that they were voting, black, voting among black men increased 50% was a, was a figure that I heard from Mrs. Barry. Um, that's significant, you know, and those are things that are worth like thinking about and remembering. Um, and those, con- those contributions were specifically came from black women. One of the women who spoke, including um, Rosa Parks and Maya Angelou and uh, Dr. Betty Shabazz, one of the women who spoke was Dr. Dorothy Height, who was present mm-hmm. at the March on Washington in 1963, but also remarked that no women spoke at that march, but mm. several women spoke at the Million Man March. Talk about that. Isn't that something? That's that's really something, because you mentioned um, sort of the patriarchal nature. I mean, this isn't a um, point of opinion. I mean, it is by nature. That's what patriarchy is. You know, when you talk about men leading and women <laughs> women following, it is patriarchal. But even in this extremely patriarchal, by definition, space, um, you did have women who got their voice and who had a voice there. But even that was not without a struggle, you know, and that's what came clear in the interview with uh, Mrs. Barry is that that uh, Ms. Minister Farrakhan actually wanted a man to read. He told her, you know, ask your friend. She can have any man she wants to read her poem. And, uh, you know, Mrs. Barry tells the rest of the story, which is that she just didn't even pass, pass that message on. She was like, if you want Maya to give her poem to a man to read, you can ask her yourself. And, and it never came up, you know. So his people reached out to Maya Angelou's people. They actually, I think they had a direct conversation, from what I understand. And it never was, the question was never, okay, can you send us a poem for a man to read? You know, so it never even got that far to even ask it. And of course, uh, Maya Angelou wrote that timeless poem, And Still I Rise, uh, which is still that whole, that's a something that, that's a poem that people remember. Um, and, you know, it was again, one of the legacies of the march was that, you know, beautiful art and poetry that was timeless that came out of that, that expressed our struggle as a people. Let me introduce you to one of the finest poets of this or any other generation, a wonderful sister, Maya Angelou. My brothers and sons and grandsons and cousins and nephews, the night has been long. The wound has been deep, the pit has been dark, and the walls have been steep. Under a dead blue sky, on a distant beach, I was dragged by my braids just beyond your reach. Your hands were tied, your mouth was bound, you couldn't even call out my name. 
you were helpless and so was I. But unfortunately, throughout history, you've worn a badge of shame. I say the night has been long. The wound has been deep. The pit has been dark. And the walls have been steep. But today, voices of old spirit sound speak to us in words profound. Across the years, across the centuries, across the oceans, and across the seas, they say, draw near to one another. Save your race. You have been paid for in a distant place. The old ones remind us that slavery's pains has paid for our freedom again and again. The night has been long. The pit has been deep. The night has been dark. And the walls have been steep. The hells we have lived through and lived through still have sharpened our senses and toughened our will. The night has been long. This morning I look through your anguish right down to your soul. I know that with each other we can make ourselves whole. I look through the posture and past your disguise and see your love for family in your big brown eyes. I say, clap hands and let's come together in this meeting ground. I say, clap hands and let's deal with each other with love. I say, clap hands and let us get from the low road of indifference. Clap hands, let us come together and reveal our hearts. Let us come together and revive our spirits. Let us come together and cleanse our souls clap hands. Let's leave the preening and stop impostering in our own history. Clap hands. Call the spirits back from the ledge. Clap hands. Let us invite joy into our conversation, courtesy into our bedrooms, gentleness into our kitchen, care into our nurseries. The ancestors remind us, despite the history of pain, we are going on people who will rise again, and still we rise. Brothers and let's give it to Sister Maya Angelou, our mother and poet laureate and sister and friend. Give it to her. Thank you, sister. And may God bless you. Looking back at the Million Man March, 25 years ago, with Howard University professor Natalie Hopkinson and the immortal Maya Angelou, who was one of several women who addressed the gathering. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can now Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. And please contribute to listener-funded Pacifica Radio. Call 202-588-9739 or go to WPFWFM.org. Thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. <laughs>